This episode of On Comedy Writing is brought to you by HBO on Amazon. What if I told you we could combine your love for premium cable with your dependence on online shopping? I bet you'd go pretty crazy. Well, time to go fucking nuts, because now we can. An HBO subscription includes instant streaming of unlimited access to addictive dramas, hilarious comedies, movies, and so much more. Fans of this show will love watching Veep, Silicon Valley, Mr. Show, Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is back and I, I've been enjoying. I think it's doing okay. I think, I think some older episodes are better, but this is certainly still good. I love Curb. Uh, <laughs> I like how I put my review of Curb into this HBO on Amazon ad. They actually... Curb filmed right outside my apartment in L.A. like seven months ago, so I can't wait to see the outside of my apartment in the show. Uh, you know, this should be an ad for Curb. I wouldn't have said it was okay. I would have said it. Anyway, Amazon is offering a free seven-day trial for HBO, and you can get it by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash HBO. After the trial, you get unlimited access to anything on HBO for just $14.99 a month. That's a good deal for HBO. My parents pay for HBO, and I assume they're paying more than that. Once again, get your seven-day free trial for HBO by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash HBO. It's not TV. It's HBO, which is brought to you by Amazon. This is a Boardwalk Audio podcast. On comedy writing... Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast about the business and craft of writing comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson, and we've got a great episode. But first, the best way to support this show is by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash oncomedywriting. Click the support our artist button and shop on Amazon like you normally would, and we get a little kickback. Our guest this week is Josh Johnson. He's currently a writer at The Daily Show, formerly a writer at The Tonight Show, starring Jimmy Fallon, and a really great stand-up comic who recently released an album called I Like You, and, at the same time, a half-hour special through Comedy Central. Josh is a really interesting guy, and we ended up on a pretty pretty big tangent about political correctness in comedy, which isn't really, which is part of what we talked about, but not fully, but that's like the best umbrella for this topic. Uh, and that was really cool. And if you're interested in kind of talking more about that and maybe hearing a, a stand-up's perspective on that, it's a good conversation. Uh, if you're someone who's interested in stand-up in general, we talk a lot about that here, maybe more than any other episode I've ever done. Uh, so you stand-up freaks, you're in for a real treat. So here is Josh Johnson. Josh, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Uh, where are you from originally? I grew up in Louisiana, and okay. I started comedy in Chicago, and then I moved here like two years ago mm-hmm. to New York. Were you um, were you doing like uh, comedy stuff when you were like a kid growing up? No, I did like my high school's talent show yeah. and stuff, but like not really, nothing I could really claim. Yeah, I uh, I did stand up for my high school's talent show, uh, but I was. Uh, this was a dark time for me. I was, like, drunk. I came to school drunk and did stand-up, and it did not go well. Oh, man. And I didn't get any trouble, though, which was great. That's, that. I mean, that's the dream. <laughs> yeah, yeah, senior year, you know? I feel, but I also feel like, I don't know how you feel about this, but anytime somebody tells a, uh, a joke or has a set that's, like, not good, I'm just like, that's the punishment. 
Right. Like that, like that's enough. Like, like even when someone tells like a horrible joke and everyone's very offended and you see all these like blogs about the joke, I'm like, well, the joke bombed. So like they lost already. Like, it's weird that we're piling on people who like already had a terrible night. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Cause I remember, um, uh, like Jesselnik, he did some sort of joke that he had to like apologize for. Uh, I forget what it was. Like, it was back when he had his uh, show. Yeah. So he was like worried about getting canceled because of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the joke was funny because Justin, like, you know, he's a great comedian. I think the joke was funny, but he still like apologized. Like apologies are weird because like no one, <laughs> like um, I actually despise people that try to make comedians apologize more than most types of people in the world, just because there are real problems. So whatever the person was joking about is like the actual thing worth fighting but then you're gonna go after the person who didn't do it and is just like making light of it but like making light of things is what people do like 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 if you had told 9-11 jokes in 2002 you know it, it would have been too soon for people but here we are you know over a decade later and everybody throws them around you know what i mean so it's it's like well, if that's the case if you just need time then this must not be as big of a deal as you're making it. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Like, if if all you need, if people say too soon, they, people say too soon, they don't say bad joke. Yeah. You know, so if that's the case, then like people going after people for too soon jokes or people going after people for sensitive subjects, it's like that is actually out there. So it's weird, you know, like no one holds politicians to that level of scrutiny. Like people with actual power think, the things that people that comedians joke about mm-hmm. and it's allowed or like blown over because it's boring right it's just like the um like the kathy griffin thing where uh i actually i don't even really get the joke that she was making but it, like it's still like less important than like the stuff that trump's actually doing you know well it's also just like you this is what annoys me about people is like everyone even even people who love like quote-unquote like clean comedy and stuff they still love when someone get like you know goes there or gets edgy or something like that which literally means you only like the good stuff so so then stop like 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 if people tell a joke and you know it's a joke and then it's a bad joke or it's a joke that offends you is like i i i you have a right to be offended but you also like need to look at the fact that like it's not that big of a deal. Like I have, I have yet to hear a joke where I'm like, "Oh no, that's gonna make people think this." And like people truly overestimate how much power comedians have. Because whenever a comedian has a good point, people are like, "Oh, that's that's pretty smart," and they walk away and just live their lives. So if that's the case, if, when, if whenever a comic saying something super positive or like or like awe inspiring and nothing happens, then why then? When it uh, when it's about a bad thing, are you like, well, someone could hear that and it could like desensitize them to the idea of? And it's like, oh god. And there's also a thing with like Twitter where people just like uh, they treat like getting like a bunch of like I mean people have like real harassment on Twitter, but then there's like people who just say like, oh this is like a bad tweet, and then they treat that as like oh all these people are coming at me as like the worst thing in the world, but you can just like log off and like. Yeah, I mean, Twitter shouldn't be a thing. Yeah, it's, it's, Twitter, a, it's bad. Twitter was a bad idea because Twitter is literally... Twitter is literally a thought bubble over your head 
and no one taught us how to use it. It just got created and everyone figured out what they wanted it to be for them. But it's literally a thought bubble above your head. What I mean by that is like outside of maybe Trump's tweets, no one's tweets carry any weight. They just they just don't. It's like they t- even if you tweet the most racist thing you could think of, it wouldn't actually affect anyone. It would offend people, but like it doesn't have any power, you know? And so it's a thought bubble, but then people like lose their jobs over thought bubbles, which like, sure, they shouldn't have put it out there and everything. Like that's always the case made against them. But I guarantee if I followed anybody, just anybody, no matter who you think you are, if I followed you around for a week and just downloaded all your thoughts, I could definitely get you fired from your job because we're all human, you know? So it's just it's a it's a weird thing. Like we're 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 in a time where we're like almost losing compassion. You know, everyone's trying to be like more woke than the next person. Right. There there was a book about that because there's the the Justine Saka who said like he went to Africa. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I don't know. It does feel like maybe it is swinging back that direction where people like people's now feel sorry for her a little bit. I think. Yeah, but like the the problem with the internet is it doesn't post retractions. So like you just ruin someone's life and then and then everyone moves on. Yeah, that's true. Like the like the best case scenario for people who are in her situation is just being left alone. There's not like an outpouring of love and apologies after that. It's just like we're done ruining you and oh, you're the wrong person. It's like when like I don't know if you follow UFC at all, but when John Jones got flagged, uh for steroids after he won the the belt um a bunch a bunch a bunch of fans were just tweeting at him like all this like hateful stuff and like you let us down and everything but they had the wrong handle oh yeah and that happens all the time yeah and so then this random guy is getting all this and he has a good sense of humor about it it's actually hilarious because like some people were like you let me down i can't believe you did this to me like i spent all this money to watch you win and 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 you you've ruined everything and then he tweeted back like I'm so sorry. How can I fix this? Like, I was just watching Game of Thrones last night, but apparently I did something. <laughs> yeah, he's a very funny guy. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, Twitter does seem like it's um, doing a lot of bad right now. Well, it's also just like, it's not, it's not even Twitter's fault. Like, it, like, like, like I think Twitter was a bad idea because we're not ready for it, not because Twitter is a bad thing. I think that... Um, I was joking with one of my friends the other day. It's like, don't you just miss, don't you just miss when no one was Christian enough? <laughs> yeah, you know I mean, like at least then you knew. At least then you knew what you had to do or had to not do, and everyone knew where you stood because of it. But now in this era of like trying to be woke, being woke is the new Christianity. Where it's like, if someone refuses to be woke, we're like, what kind of person are you? You know what I mean? Like, like there's this moral policing over wokeness the same way in the '50s there was this moral policing over like 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 Christianity or like Christian values, where it was like, I can't. You're getting a divorce. Mm-hmm. You're getting a divorce, and you'd be ostracized for getting a divorce and now it's like you won't you won't call him her you won't i what kind of person are you you know and it's like it it, it's some of it is like understandable because there's groups that have been like you know um have felt discriminated against or, or or been put on the sidelines for so long and then to a point you start expecting too much from people, you know, like it's like it's like the most you can ask of a person just in the because there's too many of us and there's too much going on. The most you can ask of a person is to be quiet and not care. Like if you like if you have a, if you have a cause and you're and you're trying to push your cause through, 
the most you can actually ask someone who isn't affected by your cause truly, if we're being, you know, objective is to be quiet and not care. Because if everyone tried to care about everything, we'd have what we have now where it's like there's a different outrage every three days and nothing's getting done about it. And like and also you can't no matter how woke you are, you'll never care enough and you'll never be able to do enough. You know, what I mean? so like like even when people talk to me about like all these like tiny minor you know, complaints like, like this sexist, racist, homophobic thing happened, whatever. I'm, I, I looked at them and I'm like, you know, a banana is still 15 cents, right? <laughs> like it's like a banana is still 15. Nothing you put in your mouth for nutrients should be a nickel and a dime. Like a banana is 15 cents. That's definitely picked by slaves. It's definitely picked. And no one cares. Right. People, people go to the, they go to Trader Joe's, they get their 15 cent banana. And then they're like, you won't believe what Rose McGowan said. And it's like, are you out of your mind? Like, like you just, you just bought a slave banana, but you're mad over a tweet. Like, and that, and that's what I'm talking about. Cause it's like, you can always point the finger at somebody just like when no one was Christian enough. It's like, well, you're not, you know, well, you're not pious enough. Well, you're not pious enough. Well, you're not pious enough. Well, you're not a priest. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And now people do it, but all of these moral authorities are like truly nobodies. They're just someone who knows a thing you don't know. Right. And it's a it's a mess, and it's why Twitter is the way it is. Facebook's kind of that way, except Facebook, I think people get a little bit more leniency because in the moment, there's something about Twitter to Facebook that like when you're writing, like let's say you're writing a joke, right? If you're writing a joke and it's a tweet, there are these constraints around it, but Facebook, there's no constraints. So you can write, I mean, I remember this dude wrote a joke. It was really, really funny. Um, but it was a novel. It was like six paragraphs and it started out as I thought he had been in an accident. Oh shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, it's, it, it started out as I thought he had been in an accident. He was describing like his Friday and, and like what went wrong and like, you know, like, like him getting in his car and then like getting sideswiped on and stuff. And then by the end, it's just like Drake lyrics, but it's like, you don't even know that you're reading Drake lyrics now. Like, yeah. like, like it was so, it, it was so smart and so crazy. Cause it just started out as like his regular posts. Cause sometimes he makes long posts and then it was just Drake lyrics and it wasn't until the second like paragraph of Drake lyrics you realize that's what you're reading and you just start laughing, you know? And Twitter doesn't really have that the same way with outrage where it's like someone says a thing. They said the one thing. There really is no context to take it in. Like when, whenever people say taken out of context, it's like comedians can be taken out of context if you take one line out of their set or something. But Twitter can rarely be taken out of context because the context is face value. It's like, look, I had eight words to say. Here's my eight words. Now, if you know me as a person, if you're my friend, you'll know I'm joking. But that's an insane thing to even ask people to just know, you know, like, like whenever people are like, it was a joke. It's like, it was taken out of context. It's like, I believe you. I totally believe you. But I also believe that it was insane for you to expect everyone to know that was a joke, you know, because uh, you weren't on stage. You weren't like making a YouTube video. This is just text that you put out into the world and expected everyone to understand the joke, you know. And uh, and Facebook also has this way of like people pile on so much more effectively on Facebook that it, that the that the outrage doesn't usually spread like it does on Twitter because even when people want to tell you how wrong you are, they also only have so many characters to do it. Whereas with Facebook, 
I mean, there there was a point somebody had where Facebook, the interesting thing about Facebook too, is that like you can actually say so many words that nobody stays on topic. There was a guy who straight up was asking, he was like, if someone is, uh, if someone has something going on that, that would be a deal breaker for you, should they let you know immediately? You know, so it's like, like, and he put like whether or not they have kids, whether or not they've been divorced, or like whether or not they're trans or whatever, whether or not they have an STD, right? And 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 so he was just laying out all these things that could be deal breakers for a person, and he was like, when should you find out? Should you find out before? Should that person does do they have a responsibility to tell you before you sleep together, or or what is that? You know, and he got the most like like three paragraphs each comments like piling on this conversation of how like wrong he was to even bring it up and like it was very weird and then someone accused him of comparing trans people to stds which he totally didn't do it was in a list of things like like he i think he even put it between like being trans having a kid having an std you know what i mean like it it wasn't even like a linear thought you know uh even when i read it and then the conversation became about that and then he had to redirect it. And the, so so it, it diffuses so quickly on Facebook mm-hmm. where you're in danger because you can actually say more words. But you're also at an advantage because you can explain yourself fully, you know. And Twitter, you just don't really get to do that, you know. And I I feel like it's happening in in late night now a little bit where people are like super, super conscious of everything. But it's like, even in that consciousness, how is that helping people? And how is that helping comedy? I just, I think that, I I think that there's a level of courtesy you can apply to your jokes and to your, to your speech. But past that, it's like, yeah, like, like, like when I, even when I do stand up, it's like, I work really hard on these jokes. So I've thought of every way around how these jokes can be delivered and I've said them in different ways. And I've thought about all this um, context around the joke. So if I say it and it still offends you, you genuinely weren't listening or you just don't like the joke. And that's both those things are fine. Well, are you also sure that you couldn't have phrased it differently? Are you saying that you've thought it that much through that? It's definitely always. Yeah, because because I don't even I don't even add time to my act that I don't think could be taped one day right so i don't even i don't even play around with like i got a 20 minute spot and i'm just gonna riff the whole time i don't i don't do that and, and there are comics that do it beautifully i don't look down on it it's just not what i do because everything that i make i want to end up somewhere because of that it has to be relatively clean and it has to be all-encompassing and universal so i have to think about if 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 a different type of person than me or than this person or than this person or than my girlfriend or whatever heard this joke, would they laugh? Because I'm thinking of that, I have to think of the angles of like how this can be taken. And I've thought about it so many different ways that like I've, I'm confident that I have put enough work in by the time I say this in front of people that – and I'm not an offensive comic and I've, I've – you know – only a couple times have I had someone be offended by my stuff and it was very innocuous. Like it was like like one time one of my friend's parents got mad at me for making fun of Dr. Phil. <laughs> yeah. But it's I like have that, talked about you know I mean? but like like a, a a wide range of subjects without having backlash and it is because I put so much thought into it. So I'm all I'm saying is for the day that it happens. It hasn't happened yet, you know? Um but for the day that it finally happens, yeah, you know. Like there's a, I can guarantee you this, 
even if someone walked up to me offended and was a joke expert, like like a really smart comic or a really great wordsmith, and they told me how to rephrase it, I can almost guarantee you the way that they would want me to rephrase it to make it less offensive would actually make it less funny too. You know? I can see that, yeah. Because you're, you're talking about an economy of words. You're talking about you know having the sharpest idea with the fewest amount of words so you can get right to the funny. Mm-hmm. And sometimes in that pursuit, you have to leave some things alone. You have to like, you know what I mean? Like, like, like if you if you have a joke that's like for more for the women in the audience than the men, you you really take the the the, the wind out of your sails if you're like now where you know where are my ladies at? And by ladies, I mean anyone who identifies as a lady. All right. So even if you weren't born a lady, but you identify as a lady, I want you to know this joke is for you. you know what I mean, like. Yeah. Just say where my lady's at. Say the joke, you know? And, I mean, I don't really say where my lady's at. That was a terrible example. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting. Because I guess, uh, you know, people have been talking. Like, I, Seinfeld came out and said that, you know, you can't do college campuses anymore. And other places. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, this what's funny to me is, like, Seinfeld said that. And everyone, like, everyone kind of went up in arms about it. But, like, both? Okay. I think that both camps on on the subject are actually kind of right because I don't know if Seinfeld would even if they were just the best comedy fans there's something about like that gap that is not necessarily meant just through history that is not necessarily meant to be bridged all the time you know what I mean like like when you're when you're that much older and you have so much life experience and someone has almost virtually none I don't unless you are an observation specialist like Seinfeld is I don't know how you're going to talk to them you know what I mean yeah but it's well that's another thing because Seinfeld is like a guy Seinfeld I feel like has like no controversial material maybe I haven't watched enough Seinfeld I didn't see no 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 I, I don't think he does so it's weird that he'd be the guy to come out and say that I think he has to be, though, because if he's not, then someone else who is a little bit more controversial is, and then people shirk it off as like, oh, yeah, they just don't like being called out for their whatever jokes. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. But because it's someone as as innocent as Seinfeld, it then sheds a light on the fact that, like, oh, okay, these kids are going too hard. Yeah. You know? Because if it were Burr, we'd be like, yeah, well, you can't just go be Burr at a college. I'm sorry. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it, because it's Seinfeld, it's like, wait, they didn't like jokes about waffles? <laughs> that offended them? Like, now you now you point more to the issue than, like, if, if you know, Doug Stanhope went to a college. Like, you can't do colleges anymore. It's like, well, dude, you, you talk about some dark stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but I also think that it, Seinfeld's right. But I also think that there's a there's a thing of of, of doing colleges sometimes where it's like you, you got to understand like college is the last place where you learn something in a classroom and you're excited to apply it immediately to the real world like like that I don't know if that happens after college or college age I think when people go back to school at like 32 and they're getting their masters or PhD or what they're not really as like gung-ho about telling everybody what they just learned you know that's something you kind of get when you're really little like when you're five and you learn a new word and you go home saying it and you ask your mom like did you know this thing you know that that happens from like when you're really little 
all the way until you're like 23. And then there's something that happened. Maybe your brain's almost done developing or there's something that happens where things you learn from then on, at least in my experience with my friends, things you learn from then on, you don't feel the, the, I don't know what the word, like, like the compulsive need to share, right? you know? And so like, I think that you do, you get into a class, you're 18, you're out of the house for the first time. You, you know, you're, you're honestly, this, this is what's crazy to me is that like everyone goes really hard on these like social justice warrior kids for how, like how relentless they are. They found out that Santa wasn't real five years ago. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're they're just finding out all of these radical ideas, so of course they're gonna be, you know, like almost, almost they're they're gonna be militant because you you just recently found out that fairy tales weren't real, you know, very recently in relation to the rest of your life, mm-hmm. and and yeah, I and I think I think that's why we have to be so accurate with our facts and we have to be so um, vigilant with information, just because like. I think it does create, especially towards jokes, it creates a more vicious world when people believe something that's simply not true. Like if, if they believe a problem is bigger than it than it really is. Because if I went around saying that one in four black men last year were killed by cops, I've just created a world that's way more dangerous for both black men and cops because now if people really believe that people really believe we lost a quarter of the black men in the country to cops last year when they come across a cop they're going to behave very differently than if i say we lost you know 600 600 out of millions you know and so i think that that's why i think a lot of the the studies classes i think a lot of the rhetoric within movements needs to be very accurate and very carefully put together because it can make someone believe they live in a worse world than they really do you know yeah. and so then when someone even jokes about it now it now we got to jump on them because they're making light of how terrible the world is and so we got to fix that and so we got to try to get them fired from their show. or We got to try to, you know, make sure that club doesn't bring them back. There's a thing that people do now, and it's one of the biggest drawbacks of the Internet. But there's a thing people do now on on both the liberal and conservative sides where now if they hate you. They try to get you fired, which is I don't know. Like, I don't like, like you're 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 definitely not going to win anybody over making them homeless. Mm-hmm. You know, right that you're not going to win anybody over to your point making sure and there are some things that you could say like okay if we found out that a judge was like actually a vehement racist was it was a grand wizard of the clan and you wanted to remove him as judge that makes sense because he's at least judging people's futures you know and you can tell he's doing it with bias now but if someone's an accountant you know what i mean just an accountant and they tweeted a thing i don't I don't know. Come on. You know what I mean? Like, like that has nothing to do with their job. My, my plumber can be racist as hell, but if he can fix the toilet, then like, we just won't speak. And then I'll have a better toilet. Like, I, I don't, I don't get that. That is and that kind of is from like the social media kind of exacerbating uh, issues kind of like that, because those people used to just like, just be there. And they, like you said, they'd just be quiet. And they just wouldn't say anything. But now they have this kind of platform, which I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've never, I've never thought someone should get fired 
Like, there was, like, that SNL writer who tweeted that Baron Trump thing. And I thought that tweet wasn't very funny, but I was like, it's not... I mean, I don't think she needs to, like, lose her job because of that, but... Did she? Is she definitely fired? I think she got... I think she's back. Oh, okay, she's, she's back? back. Oh, okay. But, um, but people wanted her to lose her job. Yeah, that's the other thing about outrage culture is that nobody follows up. <laughs> yeah, you know? Sure. Like, that, uh, even in... There was a ban on trophy hunting after Cecil the Lion was killed, and it was lifted in less than two weeks. Really? Yeah, because they saw the, the storm sort of yeah. settle. And so all that outrage ruining that Dennis life, all, all that stuff, it's like, I mean, you, you got him, but you didn't fix the problem, you know? Yeah, it's tough. I don't, I, yeah, I don't, there's not really a good answer to it, I don't think. I mean, I think the answer to it is, is the boring work, which is why right. people don't really answer it. The answer to it is to actually try to pass legislation to change the world. That's 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 what it is. But that's going to take you sitting in 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 very boring public halls, you know, and 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 like going to town halls and listening to what they have to say, reformulate an argument, trying to call your your representative, trying to work with them on a bill for the thing you want, past all the stuff they already have going on, which could take you know months to years. So. It's easier to just ruin somebody's life real quick. Right. You know? It is funny that people think, like, posting on Twitter, that's, like, activism. That's, like, like honestly, that, that, that's one of my biggest pet peeves yeah. in, in, in the world is when people say they're, like, a social media activist. It's like, oh, you mean you're sitting? Yeah. You mean you're sitting down? Because that, that's synonymous. <laughs> I, guarantee you, I'm, I guarantee you never had the threat of an ass-whooping if you're a social media activist. Like, like, there are people who actually go places and get pummeled, you know, with riot shields all over the world. But you're a social media activist. I, I get it. You're, you're doing great. Not changing anything. <laughs> <laughs> um. So you moved to Chicago. <laughs> yeah, right. So yeah. I bought a fridge recently. <laughs> uh, so, so you were you, you grew up in New Orleans. Um, when did you decide to like that you wanted to pursue stand up? Uh, well, I actually grew up in Alexandria. If I if I had grown up in New Orleans, I probably would have been a better younger stand up. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I grew up like uh, several hours outside of okay. New Orleans, but like when I moved to Chicago was to start doing stand up and that was just I mean, I, I don't know. I just I just went up and I sucked. I just bombed. <laughs> I just bombed over and over again for like, you know, about it it really took like 6 months to click. I don't I don't know if there's something about my brain or or what it is. It's like I feel like I bring a natural like a natural amount of funny to things, but then it takes like a while for it to click exactly how I should be saying things, how I should be crafting things. And even then I had to table jokes cause I knew I wasn't good enough to tell them yet. You know? So it's like, I, I really had to take like a whole chunk of time that would be stand up one day and just like rethink it. And then try to reword it, and that's exactly what I'm talking about. Where it's like, all right, if that, like, like I'm, at, I'm at a point now where I'm so exhausted over it. This joke has taken two years to write, so like, if anybody's offended by it, I'm not sorry. Like, <laughs> I definitely mean what I'm saying because it took two years yeah. to write, you know. And even that might not be a masterpiece, but mm-hmm. what's your like, your process for writing jokes? Like, do you? Um... Are you one of the queens that like kind of writes it completely out, word for word? I only write it out after it's pretty solidified on stage. So I think about it a lot. I think over the ways it can be told. 
I memorize the way that I want to tell it and then I do it a couple times. And if it's really hitting with like a pretty significant hit rate, like a pretty, mm, like let's say over 10 times, it does well nine times uh, for big crowds, small crowds. I go out of town, I'm in New York, you know, then I write the whole thing out beat for beat the way I want to say it because now it feels a little bit done and sometimes I revisit it and add extra tags and stuff like that but I feel like that at least for me is the best way because then I feel like sometimes if you write the whole thing out just as you're thinking about it you do sort of muddy the water with like what you remembered worked and what you want to work or like something you just thought of adding versus something you actually add in the moment so um, I'm just now getting a little bit better at listening to recordings of myself do the joke over and over again. But for a little while, I was just memorizing, going up again, memorizing, going up again. And was that like always your process? Just like you starting out and then just kind of figuring out from there? Yeah, yeah. Because like I don't, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, when I started, I was like very paranoid about my jokes being stolen. Um, because I really only had two good ones. Yeah. <laughs> and so then I was like, Oh, I gotta protect it. And so like, even, even just on my phone, I would almost write the joke in code. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It was, it was weird. It was like, it was like, I thought I had some sort of national treasure where some <laughs> Nick Cage comic was going to try to like break into my phone and steal my two gold nuggets of jokes. Um, it was very, uh, delusional, but that yeah, that's basically how I how I've always done it because there was no comedy to do when I was younger in Louisiana. So then I could only really just think about it, and in thinking about it, I memorized how I wanted to say it just by accident, just by thinking about it so much. And so there was no real need to write everything out, you know. Mm-hmm. Like I'd write out the subject, but then that's about it. When when you were doing um, stand up in Chicago, were you like? doing any like writing or you just kind of focused on stand-up no no i started writing about a year in um different things started like trying to write packets and stuff and Mm -hmm. was also terrible i think that i mean that's honestly i think what what ages you is that like you get to a certain age and you're like okay i never want to feel four years old at something again so i'm just done making i'm done trying new things you know because like as good as I got at stand-up, you know, and I wasn't even great, but, like, uh, you know, people at least told me I was progressing well for being a year in, and then I started writing packets, and it was, like, my first mic all over again. I was just writing terrible, terrible jokes. My sketches didn't make any sense, you know what I mean? And it was, like, and it was this thing where I almost, like, wanted to give up on it because it was just so annoying to be so bad at something again as I was getting mediocre at something else, you know? And so... It's why I really tip my hat to people like, uh, you know, when I was coming up in Chicago, Chris Red was already pretty established. But like, you know, he was always like a great person to talk to about where I was at because he basically did all three at once. So he got all he got good at all three things at once, which means he was like, you know, a starter I think I I think the way he did it is the right way to do it. I think he was doing sketch, improv, and stand up. He was starting to do them all all at the same time, so he didn't have this ego thing about him where it was like he was this hot shot stand up, but he was just getting into improv. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like, if he were going to be bad at something, he got it all out of the way all at the same time, and right. that and that's a that's a a powerful uh, that's a powerful thing to do for both your confidence and for your uh, 
you know, specialty. Because mm-hmm. then, you, then you're picking and choosing. You're actually picking things from, like, whenever people say, like, being, a, being an improviser probably makes you a better stand-up. It's like, well, only if you're good at improv. Right, yeah. You know? Would, would you recommend uh, people start, like, in a place like Chicago over, like, L.A. or New York? Always, yeah. Um, Chicago, Chicago is like the best man. Like it, like it, it's, it, it's a tough comparison to make between New York, LA and Chicago because the best Chicago people go to New York and LA. So even when you're trying to make New York and LA examples, sometimes you're accidentally using Chicago people in your example. You know what I mean? So you can definitely get better at stand up in New York. There's no question because there's just so many places to go up and there's so many good comics and you're just you're you're immersed you know and you can be immersed in chicago but the water's not as deep and and so you can drown in new york you know and i actually i mean this is just my 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 take on it but i feel like the the immersion and the water in la is just a little bit shallower where it's like there's not as many spots and you have to i mean you really have to already be good to go to la like there's no I don't think you get a learning curve in LA and I've never lived there, but I've spent a lot of time there and I, I can just feel that from the amount of time I've been there where it's like, no one, no one wants to watch someone get good in LA. No one cares. Why weren't you good when you got here? But in Chicago, it's, it's so, it's so much more of a community and, uh, so much more of like, um, its own little world. It really, it, like, it really is like, like my, I mean, I, I missed that time because um, it wasn't even that long ago. But like like literally four, three, four years ago, I was in Chicago. I was working at Trader Joe's, had a good job, you know, was enjoying all my coworkers, was enjoying getting good at stand-up. And, 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 and my friends were all stand-ups. Like they're the only people I hung out with, only people that really like got it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. now Now it's like still good you know i've got a great job um i have friends that aren't stand-ups which has its benefits (laughs) and and yeah i think chicago just like teaches you how to be a comic and new york teaches you how to be like a great comic you know um because the the all the dynamics are there Mm -hmm. in chicago i uh i lived in la for a year last year and uh, I was uh, at UCB. I was like uh, in one of the tech. I was like getting classes for doing tech. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd always tech at open mic on Tuesdays, and it'd be just the most depressing thing because it'd be oh, yeah. everyone would get like three minutes. Uh, no one would want to be there, and like no one would laugh. And the host was just trying to keep the energy up, and it was like just the saddest thing. And I it, it does seem like getting into stand up in LA specifically is like pretty tough. Yeah, and it and I mean maybe too tough, maybe tougher than is even necessary for for anyone to have to go through. You know, I feel like lots of people are doing it, and I think in LA at least a lot of people are doing it that don't really care. You know, yeah, Chicago's like such a great place. I wouldn't even say to start. I mean, it's like where you learn to be. A comic, because like I, I feel like some of these other more tertiary markets are, are the place where you have to start and then you need to leave as soon as you get the least bit good. But Chicago, you can stay, man. Like, like I think you're gonna get snatched out. You're gonna get taken out. You know, uh, of of Chicago, and not not always. Sometimes you do have to move first, but like 
people get snapped up all the time. You know? were, were you ever like a road comic, like doing uh, like big tours on the road? I wouldn't. I wouldn't say big tours. Uh, like my buddy Logan Nilsson and I were on a, uh, a tour last year, and it was like a college tour mostly because I I had booked a bunch of dates, and so uh, Logan and I rolled rolled out, and Luke Monis and I did like more than north northeastern parts of the tour, and then Logan and I did the more like Central America parts of the tour, uh, like Mid America and stuff. And that was such a great experience because not only did I get to do it with friends, but I got to like, I could feel myself getting better faster by having to do an hour every night, you know, Mm -hmm. like that was, that was, I mean, that was honestly like doing a year of comedy within a year of, of, you know, two months or something. You know what I mean? Like, like, cause the, the tour was like four months or something like that. It was a lot of dates. And I feel like in those four months, I, I, got two years out of it because now I I care much less um, about what the audience must be thinking when I walk out because that, that doesn't even help you. Like that's still just nerves that there's nothing, there's nothing um, craft about worrying what the audience thinks when you walk out. You know, Uh, I think that there's everything craft about like thinking about your, movements and your words as you come out but like I think that a lot of what I was doing when I was doing stand-up before that tour was still nerves Mm -hmm. and it it made me a little weaker and now I still care very deeply that they have a good time that they laugh that I'm coming across the way I want but like a lot of the nerves have faded because I've just bombed in front of like so many people enough times that like first of all I know what's going to happen again one day and I know how to handle it when it, when it does. And I also know that like, it doesn't have to happen. You know, I used to have this, this misconception, especially like really early in a comedy where I'd have like three good shows and then a bad show. And I was like, I think that's just the way the world works. I think you have three good shows and you have a bad show. And it's like, so then my fourth show would be coming up in a little while. I'd be like, Oh oh no. And it's like, that doesn't have to happen. That's insane that I ever thought that, you know, but when, when you go on tour to like Midwest and stuff, do you ever do you ever like think this is different crowds? So I need to do different stuff, or are you keeping no, the same stuff? No, no, never, man. Don't 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 ever do that because everybody can see through it. Yeah, everybody can see through it so much. Like when you are in front of a black audience versus like like a, a diverse audience, and whenever you're in front of a black audience, people try to like ham it up and be like, ah, y'all know what it is. Yeah. Like they can feel that, man. Like, like people can feel you not being genuine. It's just a conversation. It's like, it's, it's like right now. It's like, if I, if I tried to, you know, do a bunch of posturing and peacock in front of you, you'd be like, why did I have this guy on? This dude's insane. You know what I mean? But the fact that I can just sit here and talk to you like a person, uh, that's, that's what makes you relatable to people. So like whenever people, I'm sure that, you know, I've taken out a joke once in a while before, um, based on like the age range of the audience or something like that, but you, you never want to be different because that's just because you know you know the main reason you never want to be different is the fact that everyone wants a special, right? Like like every true comic stand up wants an album or a special to just cat you know catalog their work, put it out for the world to see. You're not going to get to be different when you do that. You get one chance. 
to tape this thing. I mean, you may get multiple chances, but you get one special, right? At least for the time being. You get one special, and that special is going to be watched by different people, and you won't be able to pander then. So it's bad practice to pander now. You know what I mean? Yeah, that makes sense. So, like, if, you're, if, you, if you really want to have a special one day, you have to write it, and you have to perform it in a way that, like, rowdy crowds would like it, and, like, more somber storytelling crowds would like it. Mm-hmm. And you have to do that all at once. So to to really change your mode for different people is you're never going to be able to do it. Then you're gonna you're gonna tape your special for the people that are there that night, and people can feel that too. And like when you're watching a Netflix special and they're too dialed into the audience that's there. I mean, I once watched somebody's special and they did 20 minutes of like crowd work on their special on their special, and it wasn't and it wasn't even like fire crowd work. Like 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 Patrice did crowd work that was like phenomenal so show me everything show me every minute of crowd work patrice ever did patrice once did crowd work on like an unreleased ep like it's like just out there on spotify or something like that and it is so funny that i don't even need to be there because they like you hear the woman yelling at him like you hear the heckler and you just hear him demolish her you know and that that's different but for literally everyone else for everyone else that is around right now I guarantee you probably can't do that and you need to make it for everybody you know even if you are you could be the most militant you know trans comic in the world but if you don't have at least one thing that everybody can relate to you're just not going to be that successful it's not because the world is stacked against you it's because you have to be understood and you have to make yourself understood like you can't just expect people you know like I think about all the time with like black issues with like am I Am I approaching this in a way that somebody would understand if they weren't me? And if I'm not, then anyone who's like me is going to find it funny. And anyone who's not, which is the rest of the world, is not going to get it. But, see, the interesting because some people would say, well, just, like, if it's the joke that, like, you love and it, like, works for you, then just go with that. And then don't worry about trying to, like, appeal to everyone else. I mean, I can see the value in that if you don't if you don't care. But like, if you if you really love your joke, then just say it in your head. Yeah. Like this is for other people. You know what I mean? Like like you're sharing something. You know? Like like I don't know if you'd ever catch a musician being like, these might not be the right chords. They're the chords I like, and then just play a a song out of tune. It's like you the only the reason you came here was for other people to share it. So how are you sharing it selfishly? That doesn't make any sense, you know? Like I'm not I'm not saying you should only pander, but it but there is there is a a beautiful place in between the way you want to say the joke and the way they get the joke. Mm-hmm. And if you have, can let go of your ego enough to find that, then you can both enjoy the joke and they can enjoy the joke. Or just keep saying it the way you want to say it and it'll work sometimes and won't work other times or maybe it works all the time because people there are brilliant people out there who say things exactly the way they want to say them and everybody gets it i don't know if i'm one of them i think i have to do a lot of maneuvering uh sometimes in the moment but other than that like that's so rare i feel like that the because even when the people you're talking about they're probably talking about their favorite joke they're not probably talking about their hour you know what i mean yeah That'd be insane if you were like, 
well, look, this is the hour that I like. I'm going to do my hour, an hour of material that's just for me. It's like usually when people say that, they're talking about one joke, which is also a fair, that's a fair bargain. If people love you over, you know, 54 minutes and then you have one joke that's just for you that you like saying in front of people because you like their reaction, that's totally fair. You know, I think it's when it becomes an attitude of like, no, man, that's not me. I'm going to do it the way I'm going to say it the way I want to say it. It's like you can just know that people won't get it as well or people even when people get offended. Right there. Some most offense is just a miscommunication because like I don't think outside of like running into someone that's truly a jerk. No one's trying to offend you. You know, they're especially comedians. Comedians are trying to be funny. People who aren't comedians that say the things that comedians say, they're probably trying to offend you. But, like, comedians are trying to be funny. So every joke is an attempt at humor. And sometimes the attempt falls short, you know, which is why I think bombing is its own punishment in and of itself. But I think that even when that happens and someone's offended at a joke, it's still just such a miscommunication that if the person offended is willing to listen and the comic is willing to explain themselves, then, like, then... There is no problem, you know? Yeah, I get that. It just, yeah, it's funny because sometimes it's just, yeah, you've mentioned this a couple times, but it's a lot of an ego thing where they, neither one will do it. Yeah, I mean, have you, okay, have you listened to the interview between, it was it was on Kamal Bell's show, uh, Jim Norton, and I think Lindy West? Uh, no, but I do know who both those people are, and they're very diametrically opposed. And their their conversation was very interesting, because uh, he, Jim Norton, first of all, said, Lindy gave her, you know, sort of spiel, right? And Jim Norton said, you're absolutely right, I won't defend bad comedy. You know? Mm-hmm. And so technically, the conversation's over. But they still have 10 minutes to fill, so they kept talking. But, like, that – but that exactly – like, that's my stance is, like, I'll defend any comic's right to say what they want to say, even if it's something very – you know, like, it could be racist, and I could be sitting there upset about it. I'm going to defend their right to say it because as long as they can bring it home and make it funny, then we all went to a place we don't like going and came back on the other side better for it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was making a lot of, like – I, I just feel like she was making a lot of like straw man situational things that were that made her point exactly right, which is fair because she has a good point. But I think Jim Jim's responses to that were always, yes, you are right. I will not defend bad comedy. But to say that someone shouldn't say an entire thing, period, is a way of saying I'm better than you and shouldn't be laughed at and I don't want to say it like that because that makes me sound like a dick. So I'm just going to attack the joke. And it's like, look, if someone tells a bad joke, they told a bad joke, which is evidence of no one laughing. You know, like I feel like it's very rare. I've, I've watched it happen before, but I feel like it's very rare that a bad, hacky, mean joke kills. You know, you're when you're a comic, everyone's expecting you to take the temperature of the room and lead them. You know, so if you lead them to a place that's too far, they're going to tell you by virtue of them not being able to react with laughter. You know, it's like when a comic goes too far on a heckler. It's like get if you rib them a couple times, everyone's on your side and we can all move on. But if you just make the show about them and you just if someone heckles you and you go on for 20 minutes about it, it's going to make everyone uncomfortable. 
nevertheless, you're, you're still the leader. We're still expecting you to take the temperature of the room, but you've lost us. And the fact that you can lose an audience is what keeps comics honest. You know, rarely have I ever seen someone just be, I mean, some, one time this guy like was being like super, I wouldn't even call it super racist. He was just being weird. Like it was like, it was like, he didn't really have a joke in there. I guess he just had a problem with Muslims or something. And he, you know, was doing pretty well with the material because there was only like one Muslim guy there. So no one had to feel uncomfortable about the jokes. He was talking to that guy. So then everyone was laughing. It was, but it was, it was a little weird. It was one of those things that I think a Lindy West would jump on and say like, see, see. And it's like, yeah, but that's so rare. Like, I don't know. And, and, and so what I found funny, if you watch that, um, clip of Jim Norton and Lindy West, she actually, by trying to make an example, she actually makes a rape joke. Yeah. So they're on there talking about, you know, like, like if you can go too far, rape jokes or whatever. And she gets to this point of where, where she's addressing Jim's point that like, no one's looking at comedy as their moral compass for how they should behave. And she's like, I'm not saying that I'm not saying a comic says maybe I should, you know, maybe I should rape this girl. And then the audience is like, well, I'm not doing anything. Like these are literally her words. Right. And so even in her attempt to make her point, she makes and maybe it's a it's a psychological thing, but it's like she ends up making a rape joke just to cut the tension of her own argument. Right. And she didn't write that. You know what I mean? So like so it, it was a weird it, it, and no one really called it out. Like no one. Jim didn't call on Kamal didn't call on it. It's kind of like in the you know, it really blew up in the YouTube comments of like, isn't that a rape joke uh, to like the example that you're making because it got a laugh that's the other thing that's that's the crazy thing about it is that she's on there talking about such a specific thing talking about how people shouldn't do it she does it and it gets a laugh and everyone moves on wow you know what i mean crazy yeah and it's and it's one of those things that you can only really address in retrospect like i would have loved for jim to like kind of jump on that point and be like that's a great rape joke you just made you know mm-hmm. and don't get me wrong there's when you you have to be so good and this is why i tabled so many jokes when i was starting out you have to be so good to talk about sensitive subjects you just do because you have to first of all address the tension hold on to it and then release it at your will and that's a lot to ask a person to do with whether it's five or five hundred or five thousand people you're doing it with all of them. You, you're holding on to attention. You're holding it in front of everybody, and then you're dropping it in front of them. And you hope that like that crash, whenever that you know that ball drops, is a crash of like you know nonstop incessant laughter, and not just a bounce of the ball. And now we're all watching watching the ball roll away. You know, mm-hmm. um, and I and I think that especially in late night, it's weird because like people start to look at late night as the as the response to politics and as the response to the the world and it i guess it always was to a degree but in such a light way like it was funny and i feel like people are forgoing being funny now for being woke and it's just i don't i don't know i mean i don't think it's good but that's just my opinion millions of people are watching and they seem to enjoy it well you you worked at uh the tonight show with jimmy fallon uh how'd you get hired for that um, I was actually, I was originally supposed to do stand up on the show, but then, uh, after they saw my clip, they asked me to send in some jokes just like, you know, as a packet and I did. And then, um, 
later on they asked me for some more jokes and I did and then I went into an interview and I got it. Uh, I wouldn't actually end up doing stand-up on the show until a little while after I left. And that was your, your first uh, TV writing job. Was that like a crazy transition? Yeah, no, it was insane. Yeah. It was like, uh, I think it's very easy, especially if you're young or if it happens quickly or if it happens early, it's it's very easy to get that imposter syndrome of like, why am I here? Why did they pick me? Like, is this is this good? Is this good? You know, you start start second guessing yourself on the stuff that got you hired, which is which is it never feels good and it never is good. And I think people, not just in comedy, but like all over, have it. If you find success, you know, if you find it as quickly as you want to find it, then you're kind of like, why did this happen so fast? Is this gonna go away? Is this you know? Um, but it it was awesome. Uh, well, how long did it take for you to feel comfortable in that job? I mean, it it didn't take too long because I worked with some good people and everything. I think I think the thing this is the thing. Um, late night shows in and of themselves are a lot like when I worked at grocery stores, where like it really depends on who you're around that make the job is very straightforward. You write jokes. The job is very straightforward. You put up grapes. So then the rest of the job is dependent on the people around you. Is someone making it hard for you to put up grapes? Is somebody is somebody standing in your way while you're trying to put up grapes? Like like then you're frustrated. Is someone blocking your, you know, your jokes or is someone, you know, and so I I feel like I had a good experience at at, at Fallon because I quickly recognized like my sort of imposter syndrome and I just let it go. And I was just like, look, What's going to happen is going to happen. I'm going to write as many jokes as I can every day that are as good as I can make them. And they'll they'll use them or they won't, you know? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the stress around these jobs is so self-induced because no one at the at the at the show was mean to me or was, you know what I mean? So it's like if I'm going to be stressed at work, it's cuz I'm stressing myself out. If I'm stressing myself out, I'm writing jokes that aren't as good, you know? Cuz you know, stress begets stress. That that's a very American invention. That we think that if we're running around stressed and anxious, we're working harder, and that's just not true. You're actually working worse. Mm-hmm. What, what was a, a typical day like at Fallon? Well, I was on monologue, so um, I would you know get joke premises in the morning and write a bunch of jokes, um, turn them in still early ish in the morning. And pitch, uh, pitch, like little things on top of that. Like if I had any bigger ideas, I'd, I'd pitch those. And then um, we would have a meeting, and in meeting we, you know, do the jokes. And then out of the meeting, those jokes would go to rehearsal. And then out of the rehearsal crowd, laughing or not laughing, those jokes made it on the show. Did you like learn? quickly like what were the kind of like I'm sure when you started you had an idea of what you were trying to do and then did you learn quickly like oh this isn't it and this is like a little it's a little, little bit different the form's different mm, not necessarily I just had to learn to write for not me right you know and so I had I had a whole way of like I would think a joke would get on because I knew I would deliver it a certain way but that's not the way that Jimmy works so then I would have to adjust the joke for like the way he says things and the way. So it was it was important to learn both to write when I didn't feel like writing and to write for somebody else because if you write 
for somebody else well, you write for yourself better, I believe. If you keep only if you keep writing for yourself. If you just dive all in and you start writing for someone else, you I think you can kind of lose your voice. But I think if you're writing for both yourself and for somebody else, the fact that I was doing stand up at night and I was still working at the show made me a little bit more versatile. Uh, what's something that like surprised you about working in uh, in late night? Um, I, I guess the the most surprising thing about working in late night is that everyone is so funny that when there's a funny thing, people don't laugh as much as you would think. You know, I mean? like people are laughing a lot, but I think that especially at Daily Show, people are laughing all the time. You know, but I think that because everyone is so funny. If a joke is just good, or it could even be great, people will be like, "That's funny." Mm-hmm. But well, that, that is kind of the thing. If like when you start doing comedy a lot, it's like you kind of lose that kind of spark for it. Yeah, and I don't even know if it's like losing the spark so much as needing a next level of of funny right. to laugh. You know, because everyone everyone that is funny can recognize funny. But it takes something truly special to like make a comic laugh really, really hard at your choke. Because that means that if, even in the world of misdirection, you've misdirected an expert. And that's so much more fascinating and so much more fun and, and, and so much more um, like surprising. It's like, you got me and I know what I'm doing. You know, Mm -hmm. like I always compare it to like doing magic for magicians where it's like there's a couple of magic tricks that are very easy to learn that will never impress a magician. They'll just be like, oh, I see what you did there. Even though I didn't see it, I see it, you know, because I know the technique. I see what you did there. And that that is like the jokes that are like fine. But then when when a trick baffles a magician and they're like, how did you do that? You bring back all of that joy from like when everyone could do comedy and you couldn't, you know. Uh, you recently re- released your first album uh, called "I Like You." How did mm-hmm. that? How did that happen? Um, I did my Comedy Central half hour and was doing the album to be released before the half hour came out, and so I went to Comedy on State in Madison, Wisconsin, which was dope, and uh, recorded over a couple nights. It was it was like such a crazy thing because I really had to like be so much more mindful of my pacing and, and my wording and, and everything because this was it, you know, like, like you kind of do the jokes however you want to do them up until the point that you're going to be taped or you're taping it to submit to be taped. And there was, there was no room for like, even an us were not ideal, you know? How do you uh, choose your material for that? Like, cause is there like a certain way you're thinking of it with like the track list, like the track order and whatnot? Yeah, I mean the track order is is my set list almost every time. Even when I tape for like TV, um, the track order or the order you see it when it's taped is just how I've been doing the set for months and months and months. So that's 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 usually how it shakes down. I don't, I don't think about order that much because it's just the order I've been performing in and it's the order that worked and it's the order that got me whatever I'm doing. Um, but I think I'm just, I just try to be more mindful. Of, like I said, it's like, this can't be for a crowd or even the crowd that I'm taping it for. This has to be for everybody. So what makes this for everybody? Mm-hmm. You know? 
did you have to like? Did you have to cut any material that you uh, thought was going to get in originally? But then when you listened back, you you thought there were. I mean, there were a couple jokes on everything that I. There there were a couple jokes almost anytime I record a long form thing that I I try to record extra so that fat can be cut. And so I was never really like disappointed or like, I don't, I, I never felt some sort of way about having to cut anything because I knew I was doing extra things so that the other things would, would shine. And then if the secondary, not secondary material, but like if the extra jokes I was doing didn't hit as well, that was that was padding for the fact that I want my best stuff to showcase. And so I do a little extra time so that we can cut back from there and rebuild. Mm-hmm. So no, I don't I don't think the only thing I think I ever was kind of blown away by was I have a I have a joke like I mentioned before about Dr. Phil. And Comedy Central legal told me that they had to cut a line out of my Dr. Phil joke because in the joke I say that he lost his license Um, because that's the thing people don't know about him is that he doesn't actually have a license on it even on his show he doesn't have and he didn't have it before the show he didn't have it when Oprah found him apparently what happens is he relinquished his license so he didn't lose it so he loves to sue people for saying he lost it when he really just relinquished it but he relinquished it because he knew he was going to lose it. Right. And even that's speculation. So you have to point out that you're speculating, which which pretty much ruins the joke. But like what f- to my understanding, what happened with Dr. Phil is that he was, I think, like sleeping with a patient or something and was about to lose his license. So in order to not lose it, he relinquished it. And because he relinquished it and he never lost it, he could never be discredited. So then when you do that, you are committing. Is it uh, slander? Um, yeah, I think it's slander when you say it. Yeah, slander is, is spoken, I believe. And so it's slander to say he lost it, which is what I did in the joke. So they had to cut that line out, and the joke still worked, but I was just kind of like, wow. Like, and, and, it, and it made me so glad that, like, like I don't, I don't put a, a particular importance on being clean. Um, I happen to be pretty clean. But that's just because of the the things that I find the funniest and the jokes I want to tell are pretty, you know, pretty clean. But I think that there's merit to talking about things that all of us experience that aren't as um, easy to to digest. That being said, it made when I got that you know email or call or whatever, it made me so grateful that I that the rest of the stuff was just so innocuous because I was like, I can't imagine if I was going back and forth on this. That's such a little thing. That's such a technicality, you know. So I can't imagine if I had like if I were Kathy Griffin and had all these pop culture references and stuff. It's like that would be a nightmare to release an album because it's like, well, you can't say that because they dropped the case, so they could sue you for. Yeah, you know, it's like, oh gosh. I'll have to cut that story out of the podcast so Dr. Phil doesn't see me. <laughs> uh, and you, you mentioned you had your Comedy Central half-hour special come out. Uh, how did that happen? Um, I, I submitted for it, you know, and when I was on that Southern tour that I did while I was on hiatus at Tonight Show. And, uh, and yeah, they were, they, they were into it. So I did my taping the same night. As Shane Torres, and that was really fun. Uh, he's 
he's absolutely great. And we actually only run into each other. It's very, it's very, it's very funny how it happens. Like his Conan was the day before my Conan and we taped on the same night in um, New Orleans for our half hours. And I can't remember. There's one more thing. And then on top of that, we're both going to be co-headlining at New York Comedy Festival. And even that was like, how does this keep happening? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's lucky that we're, we're, we're friends. I think everyone's going to think we're a duo. <laughs> uh, how much control do you have over a special like this when it's not like your own thing, but it's through the brand of Comedy Central Half Hour? I mean, you don't direct it, but you have all the control over what you say, which is most of the point of the special. You know what I mean? So, like, like I think I'll be very involved when I do my hour special, and we're talking about, you know, angles and... And the way that the camera cuts during jokes and stuff like that. But overall, I was happy to just do my set and not have to worry about any of that. Because it was a great practice for when I do my hour. It's like, okay, I'm used to worrying about the wording and and the positioning and and my movement and all that stuff. I've got that covered. Now I can worry about editing and and about, you know, overall direction, about audience like like the way that they even pick the the audience is not up to you. Um, I, I I can't remember how how exactly they fill that the theater. I mean it was packed, but like you know there are audience coordinators that you can work with once it's your special and your. So there's so many elements that I was actually really happy to not need to worry about anything but my set you know and some people stay that way some people only want to worry about their set so they're like like comedy central handle it i'll just go out there and do my hour whatever uh and some people want to be completely involved and maybe even like almost assistant direct in their level of involvement and i think that that's sort of the position i'm going to take is is being i'm because i'm not a perfectionist so by not being a professionist, but being involved, I'll always be happy because I'm not I'm I'm not leaving it up to anyone to then blame if I don't like something. But I'm I'm also not such a terror to work with that I'm going to try to do something forty times, mm-hmm. you know. So, so between that album and that special, uh, that was like a lot of material for you. Are you so you, have you completely retired that material? Yeah, I don't I don't really do it anymore because I feel like. Ideally, if people are coming to see me, they will either go listen and watch to those things or they have listened to and watched those things, mm-hmm. you know, and comedy is not like music. Like there's not as much replay value. There's jokes that people love that they want you to do that one joke over like again. Gap again. He has to do the hot pocket jokes all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so there's one joke, but there's not half a set. There's like like there's no half a set that someone could do that you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. There's like one joke, you know? And I don't even know if I have that joke yet that people really want me to do over again, you know? And when I have it, I'll do it. But but I think people want a majority of different material. Sometimes even every time they watch you. Like like when I, I was writing a lot in Chicago because I, you know, was just working at Trader Joe's and and even getting good so I didn't know that a lot of the stuff I was saying wasn't good and one of the things that people would comment on was that I like was never repeating um and there's a there's a beauty and and there's positive things about never repeating but you never get to like hone in those jokes if you're never repeating you know Mm -hmm. so it almost became like this point of pride for me for a little bit for a couple months not long but like it became a point of pride for me to like never do the same material at at 
shows within a week of each other, you know? But because of that, I was writing so much and I was like forgetting some jokes and like some, I mean, I'm sure there's somebody out there that can do it, but that's just, that's just not me. And I also don't hone a joke fast enough to warrant doing different material every single time. That would be crazy. So, so right now you're kind of in the mood where you're getting up on all your material again, like getting a bunch of new material. Is that kind of daunting? Like having to start like over? No, I mean, I feel like it becomes less daunting every time because every time you you drop something in the bucket, you know how to do comedy better. So then it's less stressful, you know? Like, I was I was very fortunate. I was very blessed in that all of this stuff has been happening for me this year. And that means I've had to burn a lot this year. But because it happened this year and not some last year, some this year, I'm actually in a position where... Um, I'm like using up a lot of you know, stockpiled material, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like over these past, you know, four years, I've been writing so much and I've been like, you know, cataloging a lot of it, putting some of it away, cu- tabling a lot of it. And now I'm getting to use like all of it. And so it's not, it's not as daunting. Um, I think the only thing that I need to do that I don't do right now that is very important is I don't actually time the bits like what I did with my half hour was um and I did this maybe only for tonight show I don't even know if I could say I did for my half hour I what I'm essentially doing when I write out the bit is I'm writing up a transcript of how I do it already and so within writing that transcript I would put a time stamp on what the exact amount of time each bit was if I do that for every bit, then I can put together a 20-minute clip so much easier, but I'm usually too lazy to do it. So I'll transcript the whole thing and then just hope it's 20 minutes if I put enough stuff together. And I'm usually decently within range. Uh, I'm never like two, three bits out, but I'm, I don't know. There have been times where I'm like, I'm like oh, I was off, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but. Uh, so right now you're working at The Daily Show. Uh, how did that job uh, come to you? Um, I mean, I, I, it was a lot like Fallon, you know, I sent in a a packet and did an interview and, you know, had a really, really fun time working on the packet to the point where like, you never, I don't know, especially in comedy, it's like you never want to want anything because then it's like, because then if you don't get it, it feels that much worse, but it's like, oh man, it was, it was, it was really fun to even work on the, the packet. And so um, even when I went in for the interview, there was this like wanting that I hope wasn't like seeping off of me. And, uh, and then when I got, when I got the call, I was like blown away, you know, cause like tonight's show truly like fell in my lap a little bit. And this one was a thing I wanted to do. You know, I've only ever heard good things about working there and I've only ever, you know, watched the show with like, wow, that was really smart. So so I don't know, you know, and, and once I got there, it, I mean, it's been great, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what's like an average day at The Daily Show? I mean, we, you know, it's, it's, it's very different from Tonight Show because I'm not just on a monologue team or something like that. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a writer contributing to, you know, different things every day and it's, di- and it's different depending on the day. So like, it, it's much more fluid and, 
and you know the meetings are great and uh the people that I work with are really really funny like really like funny to the point of jealousy like i like 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 sometimes in my head i'm like oh how are you this funny you know what i mean just like bubbling up inside me but um you know we 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 have lot, lots of meetings and people pitch and uh trevor's really great he's he's a, he's a great listener and he's uh very very funny very creative and so you know it's just been such a i don't even have words for it honestly because it's been so dope like i like i don't know it's it's hard to to put into words because it's i've i finally feel like i'm somewhere where my sensibilities my uh timing and my thoughts can be echoed out and in a in a in a positive way that is uh, helping a team, you know. Mm-hmm. Were you were were you always someone who was interested in, in political comedy, or was that just kind of something that you you liked to see, but maybe didn't write as much? No, I mean, I I don't even consider myself political now. I, I'm I'm more focused on human nature, you know. It, there's there's nothing like politics is just us talking about the way people are behaving like 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 you know political science i feel like is just behavioral science because you can't really point to anything that's happening in politics that's new people act like trump is new he's not new he's maybe slightly new to america but people have had trumps since the beginning of time like kings were trumps you know like a like a king would wake up in the morning. I mean, was it was it like King Philip the Fourth or something? They called the Mad King, or and he he was just he was like you know like off his rocker sometimes, and he'd say stuff, and he like wanted to declare a war on Thursday, and then you know want to have a feast on Friday, and and it's like that's not new. That's it feels like it's new because it's happening to us, you know, but. But I don't even think I think the the you know I had a conversation the other day about how uh, you know Hillary lost to Trump and everyone was was talking about like sexism 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 and it's like look you're you're definitely right the sexism exists and it was definitely a factor in her campaign but she won the popular vote so if we had to tally up people. More people voted for her. So I feel like you're stopping short of the problem when you just say sexism and write it off because she did win the popular vote by millions. So I, it's hard for me to believe that a, you know, I it's hard for me to believe America is as sexist and racist as people make it look because the same people that voted for a black guy twice didn't vote for a white woman as white people. And... Even so, even with that happening, that same white woman won the popular vote by millions of votes. So, like, I think it's more about the fact, and I I truly believe this, I think it's more about the fact that she was having a hard time keeping up with the the show, the reality show that, that Trump turned the election into. It wasn't the 2016 election it was season 45 of the presidential race you know what i mean mm-hmm. like it wasn't it, it and so and cuz this is the thing people say that about hillary they apply the sexism thing and everything like i said totally makes sense totally valid but men were losing to trump men in his own party men that actually believed the things that he was just learning about this i mean this man is just learning about disaster he's just learning about the opioid crisis he's just learning you know like he he's being caught up on these things in the moment and there were people who knew and had feelings about him it about those things in his own party that lost to him so it's it's much less about 
uh, sexism, I believe, and much more about the fact that no one could keep up with the monster reality show he turned it into because he was calling Ted Cruz a bitch on Tuesday and Ted Cruz re- was responding very presidential, which makes him look like a bitch, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And so like, like, like he also proved, Trump also proved to us, and I think we're still upset about it. Trump proved to us that if you can at least make it entertaining, we'll watch and we'll be cool with it. You know, so even when he screws up, if he screws up and he makes it funny, then we'll let it go. And that's a I mean, that's a dangerous thing about us, not him. You know, Trump's going to be Trump. What are we doing? Well, and that's interesting because how do you tackle that working on a show that is covering Trump getting his actions like every night? Um, I mean, I pitch, I pitch the jokes I believe in and, and there's a discussion there. You know what I mean? So it's not like, I'm not trying to win anyone over to my way of thinking. I could be totally wrong. I'm just saying that it's happened before. Uh, when we talk about these like isms, right? Like, like, you know, sexism, racism, whatever you're talking about someone using these as tools as, as like maybe a gun. And you're holding the gun to the other person, right? So if a man is being sexist to a woman, he's holding the sexism gun to the woman, you know? And it's bad because he's holding the gun and she's she's going to be shot. If we turn it around and we give her the gun and now she's shooting the guy and we're, and we're being sexist towards you know, men, someone would, some people would argue that can't even happen. But if we're, if we're you know, switching the gun... It's not a problem for me that now the women, the woman's being sexist to the man or vice versa. The problem is the gun. No one's getting rid of the gun. And I think the way you get rid of the gun is you look at the deeper problem, which is why anyone wants to shoot anyone else. If this example makes any sense at yeah. all. What, what I'm saying is the, the thing with Trump and Hillary, it doesn't need to be Trump and Hillary. In 2020, he can win again if he can just find somebody that can't keep up with the show. And so pointing at sexism, sexism, sexism hurts us because we're not looking at the bigger issue of like, no, 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 no. It's people are laughing it's funny it's a game Mm -hmm. that's why he won because he beat like he beat white men so like you know what i mean like like it like like it it starts to lose some of its in his own party he beat white men more qualified than him of course he was gonna beat you know a woman from a different party of course she was never gonna get his votes you know and so there's some logical points in there. There's some just just obvious points where it's like you can't tell me. First of all, anyone who wins the popular vote should win. The electoral college is absolutely insane. So like she in my eyes, you know, by just logic, she did win. So to point at this 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 culture that's like really pushing and keeping her down, it's like you're right that people are harsher on her and she had very different standards for being a woman, but she also won without winning you know Mm -hmm. so there's two problems there one we should never have an election where someone can win without winning again and we should also never have an election where it's so much of a game for us that because the other person is professional it makes them look weak that's a flaw in us you know Mm -hmm. that's not necessarily a flaw in hillary everyone's like well she responded like a robot it's like well she responded to the question like i don't know i don't know what else you want to do and some people don't like hillary and that's perfectly fine too you know i'm just saying that like this will literally happen all over again if we say well that was sexism and now we just need to pick somebody who can who who is 
more qualified who can beat him. Everyone's more qualified in the Republican Party than Trump, you know? Like, truly, like, everyone else had experience, you know? I wasn't necessarily a Rubio fan or a Ted Cruz fan or anything like that, but they had experience. They they responded to things in a way that, that made sense to people, you know? And... I I don't I don't know. I mean, I think I think we could end up with four more years if we keep on this track of like, you know, it's somehow everyone's fault. I mean, it's like that Bill Bird joke he did on Conan where he was like, No, nah, Hillary has to take responsibility that she lost to a moron. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like that's that's funny, but it's also like you gotta be looking at, at bigger pictures. And I feel like that's what makes that's where I stand. I'm not as political because I think when you're political, you're thinking too small. Like I'm I'm interested in how people think now that's gonna make them vote eight years from now. And you don't know that through politics or polls. You know that from knowing people. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So that's interesting. So yeah, so how so how do you like when you are pitching ideas like are you is that in the forethought of your head when you're thinking about stuff like that idea or are you just trying to like kind of pitch on the news and try to like find your take from there i mean takes are important but i feel like if you have if you have a narrative if you have a belief or if you have an idea of someone or a a particular subject I think you just really have to make that refillable as long as you still believe in it. So I'm always willing to change my beliefs on on certain things. I want to hear what people have to say. But I also have this thing of like, okay, if we look at Trump as, you know, like like a funny take I believe in is if we look at Trump as um, a college freshman that that like didn't do the midterm paper and it's the night before – that's both funny to me and it's also realistic to what is happening because Trump is learning about things that are immediate crisis in, in, in the real world that he needs to do something about immediately and he's learning about it. And the only thing I can relate to that is when I was a freshman in college and I waited until literally the last night, the last six hours of the night to do my paper. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And so if I make that refillable, as long as it applies, sometimes it doesn't apply, you know? But as long as it applies, if I'm looking at that like, okay, well, this is what I would do if I were, you know, still a freshman and I just found out about the opioid crisis and I had to write a paper about it. These are the things I'd say. I'd be very vague. I'd, I'd you know, try to finagle with, with like terminology and stuff like that and then whenever you do that it also makes the human more relatable to you like it's very easy for people to 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 shirk a person off but it's like look we could even argue that the man didn't really want to be president everyone was surprised he won everyone you know and he even kind of had this sign off at his last rally where it was like if i don't win it'll be the biggest uh you know uh, conspiracy and politics. I, I can't remember what he said, but it truly was like one of those things where it's like, if I don't win, he really, he's, he's brilliant in leaving himself open, um, to not look like he lost, you know? And so he, you know, he, he said one of those, one of those like, like lines that he says, and then he won. And even Trump supporters were surprised, you know, which is why they were so happy. Cause they were like, Oh, I mean, it looks like she's got it. And, what do you mean Iowa? What do you mean Michigan? What do you mean Wisconsin? You know, and so 
you're talking about a man that arguably didn't think he would get the job and he's never had a job like it before. And, you know, in a weird way, honestly, honestly, like, and I, I get flack for saying this, but like in a weird way, I do think he's doing the best he can. You know, I don't think like whenever people are like, all he had to say was this. It's like, yeah, but he doesn't have your brain. He doesn't think like that. So he's literally doing the best that he can. And like, I don't even I'm not even saying it's an amazing job. I'm just saying, like, look, if I had to be president for four years, definitely for four years, starting tomorrow, there's so much I don't know about. I know about a couple things. The man knows about what he knows about. So when he talks about tax reform, I believe he actually knows what he's talking about and he knows what he's doing and he knows what he's trying to finagle in. I don't know if it'll actually help as many people as he's pretending it will help, but I do think he knows what he's doing because he has wiggled himself with taxes before. You know, when he talks about drugs, I don't think he knows what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. And I would be the same way. I would know a lot about, you know, like if I were, if I were heading up HUD, I'd be listening to very different people than, you know, or if I were the secretary of education, I'd be listening to very different people than Betsy DeVos is. And, you know, but I don't, I don't know. It's like, I think that's the best that man can do. Yeah. I think the difference though, is that like, if I, if I was president, for instance, I also wouldn't know anything. And then I would uh, ask people and trust them and kind of go with that. While Trump doesn't, I don't think he's like the ego problem to not do that. I think I think he has an ego problem to not want to look like he's doing it. I do think he's doing it. I just think the people he surrounded himself by are, yeah. are, are giving him the advice that he's you know, following. You know, yeah, that's true. I think that like it. That's what's so crazy about it. And like, it's why even if you're a Republican, even my Republican friends are like they they see what Trump is doing sometimes. And they're like, Ugh. because because it it's just. A terrible situation. You should know what you're doing before you get into something. You know, like whenever people were like, I like him because he's not a politician. I was like, yeah, but would you like your pilot because he's never flown a plane? Like, like you, you do need someone with some expertise, you know, at least I can't, I can't remember her name, but at least she was a lawyer. Like, like it's one of those things where it's like the man ran casinos, like, like this doesn't sound like a good recipe. And not well, he didn't do a great job at it. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. It's 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 a tough call, but I think that when you get stuck on him, you miss the the bigger picture. Right. And it is not about politics; it's about people. Mm-hmm. You know. So uh, you work at the Daily Show. What would you like to be doing next, stand up wise, and just in general? I mean, taping taping my hour will be. Uh, would definitely be next and I think another album to accompany the special and then just writing my own projects and stuff um I think I think I'm in a spot right now where you know I'm very I'm very happy I'm very comfortable everything's going well and so I need to you know do the best I can at at my job and get better at the other things I do you know um I feel like right now I'm good at a couple things, and I'm interested in a lot of things, and I want to get good at a lot of things, you know? Mm. Uh, okay, so we're going to wrap up uh, with you giving your thoughts on something I wrote. This is a sketch pitch. Okay. Um, oh, yeah, okay. So it'd be like uh, someone's like making their, their grandmother's funeral to be like a big social event. So they'd be like, are you guys coming to my grandmother's mourn con? 
and stuff like that. All the hostages are going to be there. My aunt, her book club friends, something like that. So that's the basic idea. And so you would... Is it, so this is a sketch where everyone's going to Morincon, or are you trying to like trying to twist people's arm into going to Morincon? Yeah, the second part. I think I, what I think is funny about that is if you just described all the booths. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like if it wasn't just like a straight funeral and there were actually booths around the casket. Oh, yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah just like... <laughs> just like uh come come uh come to the saline solution booth whenever someone dies that you really don't care about you can still look like you're tearing up you know yeah. check out the grilled cheese truck yeah 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 <laughs> check out the sample platter of pies nobody likes uh all right that's it yeah thanks for coming yeah. out hey. dude thanks for having me Anything so much you want to plug? Uh, yeah, I'm actually going to be headlo- co-headlining a show at New York Comedy Festival with Shane Torres, November 7th at New York Comedy Club. Also, uh, my album, I Like You, is anywhere albums are sold or streaming. And um, yeah, if you want to follow me, I'm on Instagram at, at Josh Johnson Comedy and on Twitter at Josh Johnson. But I got to warn you, I don't tweet much. I don't, I don't like being in trouble. So I, I, I really, I really hold off on the tweeting. And, uh, then on Facebook, you just type in Josh Johnson comedian. There's a little verification thing. Got that blue dot. Oh, nice. All right. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of On Comedy Writing. I want to thank Nick Doss for supplying the sweet tunes. Zachary Glassman for giving us the awesome logo, and Boardwalk Audio for hosting us. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, and like and follow on Comedy Writing on Facebook and Twitter. See you next week! Audio podcast. For more information and shows, visit boardwalkaudio.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe now.